The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, select all, press delete, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 304 with guest Kathleen Dollar, recorded live Tuesday, December 18th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wishes everyone a happy Christmahana Kwanzaadon. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's our Thursday show, the second show of 2008. Hi, Richard. Howdy, sir. Uh, it's good to be here again talking to you and talking to Richard as well. We are just relaxing a little bit here. You know, it's a new year. The holidays are over. It's time to refocus, to regroup. Think about what we're doing a little bit developer-wise and business-wise and family-wise. It's just kind of ah, r- relaxing. Yeah, I like to take my January a little slower. Yeah. Get in, really think about what I want to do for the year and, and then move into it. We're going to have a studio opening party here in a few weeks. Sort of, um, you know, winter party. Love winter parties because yeah. everybody's freaking depressed after the holidays, right? It's like... Oh man, you know, back to work, nothing to look forward to. Well, especially so. that that the first quarter of a year where there's hardly any breaks of any kind. Right. You got to do something. Got to do something. So, that's our message here today. Be with your friends and loved ones. It's uh it's a good time to have a party. Yeah. Or two. Yeah, or more. Uh better know framework. Time for that. Excellent. And there's our famous Better Know Framework music, <laughs> which people seem to love. Uh, especially at double speed. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, what is that about? It okay, already sounds like it's at double speed, doesn't it? Yeah. So, today we're going to talk printing. 
with the system.drawing.printing.print document class. Oh, yes. And this, uh, the definition here is that it defines a reusable object that sends output to a printer when printing from a Windows Forms application. So what's cool about this is that you uh, new up one of these and you attach uh, to the events, the event handlers, and the main event handler that you're going to use is print page. What's really cool is that it passes uh, an arguments, the print page event args object, and that has a graphics object on it. Okay. And it also has a lot of other things. It has um, a has more pages property. And you set that to true if you need to print another page. So this is the like if you're if you're doing your own drawing with lines and boxes and images and everything right, right. on the page. Okay. Well, yeah, this just reminds me of the old device contexts. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, the uh, graphics object is like the device object for right. GDI. Now this is not WPF. Okay. No, no, this predates all that. Yes, yes, it does. This is the uh, .NET one o and two o. Um, printing stuff, graphic stuff. So, so it's very cool. I've used it extensively to build um, multiple page kind of report things, and and it you know it's a lot easier than than you think it's going to be. I love just being able to draw on that graphics object and set has more pages to true. And uh, if I need to, there's also extensive objects that allow you to get to the capabilities of the printer. Um, set the printer that you want to use. You can sh- hook it up to print dialog boxes and print preview dialog boxes. It's just a dream to use. And the gra- and the uh, the samples in the help file are actually pretty good. So there you go. Not to turn this into a show or anything, but where would you feel you would use this rather than, say, active reports? Well, that's a very good question. I think, uh, you know, if I wasn't so data-centric... Um, you know, with, with things that I wanted to print. Um, if I was data centric, I would definitely use a report. Nobody wants to chew through a lot of data and move right. stuff around and you have no idea how big the data is going to be. And and nobody needs to invent another graph. No, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I used it. That was really cool. I, um, I wanted to write a little program to print out some staff paper, you know, for music notation. Oh, right, right. It was really easy. It took me five minutes. So... There you go. That's what I used it for. Okay. So, Richard, do you have an email? I do indeed, sir. And this is from Richard Halgren. Hi, Carl and Richard. Just finished listening to your last show on Silverlight. I think that was the Jeff Procise show. And really enjoyed it. You probably hear this a lot, but I'm really liking the mix of context for the shows these days. Great Mm. work. Keep it up. As the show was a lot about how Silverlight might be used and how Silverlight-based UIs might look and feel, I'd just like to tell you about the Adobe Flex example page. Hmm. And I shrinksterize this, because Shrinkster's back. Right. It's at shrinkster.com slash T-K-H. And the website is actually flex.org. And so it's a bunch of demos, sites, or maybe the real sites, too, of Flex-based applications. That's Flash. Huh. And you know what it reminds me of almost is like CSS Garden. Oh, Just right. a lot of different looks. And to Richard's point here, it's packed with examples of Adobe Flex-based applications, and it's really mind-blowing to see what's possible when open up the creativity of the web. 
There are just so many talented people out there that I'm more and more surprised that somebody would actually want to hire me to make web pages. <laughs> anyway, I found this page to be a nice place to get inspired and to force me to think outside my HTML web box. And I think one of the points he's trying to make here is really we should be able to do all of these same effects in Silverlight. Like it's an example of what we should be trying to get done with Silverlight. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to loads of excellent future shows. Cheers from cold and snowy Sweden. Which we might be going there next year, right? Yeah, this we year? had a call uh, from some conference organizers in Sweden. And uh, at the time, we couldn't fit it in. But I'm really tempted. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got a soft spot for anywhere I haven't been. And Sweden is one of those places. And I have, uh, I know I have some family over there. Cause oh, my, really? On my mother's side. Yeah. Very tempting. Yeah. Anyway, Richard, thank you very much for your email. We're having a good time doing it, and thanks for the great link. Awesome. And just a reminder that uh, Infusion is taking their Sleepless in New York um, training, SharePoint training weekend on the road, and you can apply. It's free if you qualify. The Sleepless Road Show, uh, it's back, and they're bringing the best of SharePoint office development and Silverlight training to you for a chance at $100,000 in prizes, including an all-expenses-paid trip to Microsoft's Office System Developer Conference in San Jose. You know, what I really like about the sleepless bit is it's not just a contest. It's also a ton of training. Oh, it's all about training. Yeah. And they've really rounded up some amazing folks to do that training. Yeah, they basically want to come and train people and show the world... Uh, you know, what they do in the SharePoint space and have some fun doing it. Um, so in, uh, the, it, it begins January 12th, 2008, and the deadline is tomorrow, wow. which is, uh, I think it's tomorrow. No, no, it's Sunday, Sunday, January 6th. Right. Yeah. You've got till Sunday. So yeah, it's Thursday got, now. That's right. You got a couple more days to get your submission in. Yep. So, uh, they'll be in DC. In Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, and Chicago. And uh, they're bringing SharePoint's elite, including the Microsoft, uh, some Microsoft product team members and SharePoint MVPs who are going to train you on SharePoint and Silverlight. They'll also have a mystery game show and overnight developer competition, which is tons of fun. Don't, uh, don't plan on sleeping at all. That's why it's sleepless, you know. And uh, the winning team gets an all-expenses-paid trip to San Jose for the Microsoft Office System Developer Conference. If you think you have what it takes, go to www.infusion.com slash sleepless and apply. And it's free. And with that, Richard, let's bring Kathleen Dollard back onto .NET Rocks with this introduction. Kathleen has developed business applications for over 20 years and working with .NET since the early betas. She's been a Microsoft MVP for over 10 years, was the founding president of the Northern Colorado.net Special Interest Group, and is an active member of the Denver Visual Studio User Group. Kathleen is the author of Code Generation in Microsoft.net from A-Press, and has a monthly column, Ask Kathleen, in Visual Studio Magazine. As an iNeta and conference speaker, she's spoken in 25 states and five countries. Welcome back for the fourth or fifth time, I think. Kathleen Dollard. Hi. You're a regular veteran of this show. I am. This is only the second time I've done it uh, when I wasn't, like, live in, a, in with you in the studio and, like, with real people down in Dev Connections. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you're, I think you're the only one who's done every form of the show. Right. You, you were in the, 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 what was it, we used to do, the Speaker's Lounge shows? 
Right, Remember I've been those? on that. That actually would make the fifth, and then I've been in the studio in Connecticut, and right. I've been at the conference, and I've been on the phone twice. So yeah. now Once you're... on the old version of the show, and now on the new version. So what's left? I don't know. I don't know. You're going to have to come up with... I, I know what's next. Next next is going to have to be uh, uh, DNR TV. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or, oh, yeah, or we'll make an DNR avatar TV. of you and bounce you around on the web somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> I was thinking about a .NET Rocks reality TV show, but that's a different thing entirely. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. That sounds... I don't know. My life is... You know, I'm not sure that would be a good t- reality TV show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. .NET reality TV. Hmm. Nah. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Nah. Well, um, we were talking at Dev Connections about some of the things that you've been thinking about, and then I looked at your blog, and oh, my God, you've been thinking about a hell of a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if I should focus in a little bit, but it's not going to be this week. So I'm still pretty scattered right now, but there's so much fun stuff going on that it's very, very hard for me to kind of get focused uh, on specific things. And at the same time, I have to make a living too. So Right. Now, before we dive into this incredible list of the ways that development has changed, which we obviously have to go into, but um, your your interests are still all over the place, like you said, workflow, code generation, um, all sorts of things. Right. I'm in WPF as well. Um, there's some other folks in WPF that I'm pretty impressed with what they're doing, but uh, I'm still in WPF uh, with, with my perspective, which is WPF for the coder, for how it's making life better for the coder. So, yeah, and definitely okay. in workflow. And now um, if I get some time, I want to jump into the storyboard stuff that's part of the VSX stuff uh, that's coming out um, from whichever division is doing the Visual Studio extensibility. Because storyboard's pretty cool, too. So... Let's let's just dive into this uh, from your blog, leaning into Windows, um, which I've shrinksterized the first of the uh, of of these posts. You you have these series of posts of what's changed in software development since the what the early '80s, I guess, right? Right. When, when I at least thought, and I think we were naive to think it, but I think we used to think we knew how to do development. That if we just did it right, it would be easy. Well, that's because the. The parameters were so well-defined, right? Well, you know, I think that, that to some degree that's true, and to some degree we were kidding ourselves. Maybe. So I think both, both let me, are true. Let me just give the Shrinkster URL right now. It's shrinkster.com slash S, as in Sierra, Y, as in Yankee, and H, as in hotel. Uh, so this is the first of a series of um, articles, and I'm just going to let you take it because it's your thing here. Just share with us. Okay, well... the basically was, um, I mean, at one point, this actually started out as an abstract for Ineta Talks, and the, the basic core of the abstract is, okay, so why is development hard? Is that a question we can seriously ask and get meaningful answers to? And when I started thinking about that, I thought, started thinking about the fact that back in the 80s, when we had Grady Booch's book and we had uh, Nancy, I think it's Nancy Wilkinson's book on CRC cards, we actually thought we knew what we were doing. <laughs> and now we feel like, I mean, at least I feel like I'm just hanging on to the tail of a tornado. Wait, wait, wait. We didn't know what we were doing back then either. <laughs> you know we what? just, I, we I'm were not... deluded enough to think that if we do this, it'll be good. Right. Hey, now that know, we're I, doing I, it, we find out, I'm still scared. Right. Absolutely. Okay, so, but still, once I asked the question, so what's changed? And I started this list, and the first time I gave the talk was up in Mitchell, South Dakota, and I had about 20 items on the list. And in that room, we added like 10. And then I gave it in in South Bend, Indiana, and we added another 15. And <laughs> I gave it in Fort Collins, and we added another 20. And we're up to 60 right now. And I think it's going to grow further. Um, 
But you know, before before you even go any further, I just got to say that this could sound to the listener like a bunch of old farts complaining about the good old days and how great they were. But but you say in your blog that it's definitely not that calling this a problem is itself problematic, right? Exactly. And so, but we want to understand the change because it helps us to organize the change in a way that we can figure out how we're going to ride this in a really good way. Every single thing on my list I'm loving. I, I love these things. They're also all the things that make development really great today. Right. But it is tough to keep them all corralled enough to be useful and not have them go spinning off into really causing our development real problems and, and potentially failure in our development. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. This is good stuff, but I do think we want to recognize the change so that we can work with it constructively. Yeah. Information overload, big problem. And, of, right. of course, everybody's got a different flag to wave, so, yeah. Right. Well, let's start, right. let's start going down the list, starting with parallel entities. Well, well, the basic idea there is that, you know, we have so many different, um, within our applications, we have an entity, for instance, an invoice or a client or um, a product, and each of those has a set of code that's very closely to rate, related to each other in order to solve plumbing and authorization and validation problems. It's very similar, but we do it all over the map. We do it many times with variation. Right. So... Re- repeat not not just repeating code, repeating entities. Well, we're repeating we're repeating the internals to the entity. So we're likely to only have one customer um, customer class, hopefully, um, that does it. You know, actually holds the business. But we're likely to have um, adjacent to that. We're likely to have a data access layer, which is going to be almost identical for the invoice and the customer and everything else that we have to build. Okay. So this is this is really about complexity, isn't it? A lot of it's complexity. I've just finished the first cut of the taxonomy on this, and of the 60 items, 26 of them I listed in this first cut at organization as being ways we manage complexity. Um, what I told myself is I could only uh, categorize something under one category, and so one of my categories was managing complexity, and it wound up with a lion's share um, of the items, which means that we are more likely to do something because it manages complexity for programmers than we are because it adds value to users. Mm. And that was a very profound thing. It is profound. To come out of this first cut. It's absolutely necessary. I, I don't think that's something we want to to change, um, but there was only a handful of items like workflow that actually changed what the user is going to see as opposed to making our lives easier. Right. Isn't the statement that we're making here that we're giving users today the software they want, that we aren't actually that worried about more features? I would even argue that workflow is is not adding a new feature per se. It's just making a particular feature people quite like a lot easier to do. Mm. Well, and, and that's true. And whenever we look at a taxonomy, there's going to be a whole lot of different nuances and different people are going to cut it differently. And, mm. and so that's why I think it's an interesting point for conversations among a lot of people uh, because you might come up with a completely different cut than I did. I perceive workflow as actually something new for users that they can use that most cases they haven't had before. But you're going to see it differently and Carl's going to see it differently. Right. And that's why I think this is an interesting set of questions to pose. Okay, number two, N-tier. So that's 
just our, you know, three tier, whatever we're doing, um, right. putting things across, separating out in a vertical manner, in a vertical plumbing approach, we're going to separate out tasks that way, not just the way Booch did in terms of separating out separate entities. That's where it really got interesting for me was when we, when we, when two tier was the buzzword. You remember that? Yes. Two tier right. was the buzzword. Take your code out of your UI, right? Right. And then it became, well, maybe three tier. Well, maybe we could have an unknown amount of tiers. That's, that's where I think people started to go a little crazy. <laughs> right. I think that that happened. And then we got into at the same time, we got into the, um, uh, the whole world is one application, which I think Don Box, uh, said at one point where we, we look at, um, it, at applications not necessarily being, even having the same definition that they had before. Yeah. Okay. Number three, sheer magnitude. Well, our applications overall are more complex. I would, I will sit with a straight face and talk to people about databases with 500 tables uh, or more. Um, I tend to work with uh, complex uh, databases. That tends to be what lands in my in my lap, and so it's rare. I actually work with a database with less than 200 tables, and that is in no way the world I had in the 80s. In the 80s, 50 tables was plenty. We didn't right. work with bigger databases. Right. And databases run that complexity throughout everything we do. How about you, Richard? Number well, this is really, I think, more of a statement of sophistication of applications. People expect apps to do more. Yeah, it's, That's right. And we it's also a statement of we're not siloing our apps the same way we did in the 1980s. Um, they're far more uh, broad in terms of you know, the idea of an accounting application is going to interact with an uh, inventory application. So we're also stretching our applications in a horizontal manner as well. Right. Number four, application code generation. This is right up your alley. Yeah, that, and remember, this is all just stream of consciousness. I want to tell right. people there's no organization in the order of this <laughs> list whatsoever. Right. A lot of this is just what people are throwing out at user groups. Um, and I think code generation does pretty fundamentally change the architecture. I actually looked at code generation back in the 80s, and I rejected it up until .NET because we didn't have the underpinnings of the infrastructure to make it work. So I didn't just mm. dive in with .NET. Mm. Uh, with code generation, I actually looked at it, worked with it, and rejected it. In previously in Clipper and in VB uh, VB three four five six. Yep. So now it's here, and it's very real, and it's very usable for everybody. This ought to be fun. Number five, service oriented architecture. Right, and that gets <laughs> back to what I said about you know maybe it's just one big application in the whole world, and and that's probably an exaggeration. But our applications are not silos um, at all. Each application is going to have to expose itself to other applications, a lot of um, data transfer is done now. Yeah, multiple silos. I look at it that way. Right. And we have a whole other interface there because in addition to designing our applications for our users, we're designing our applications with a finite interface to look out for other applications. And I'm finding more and more cases that's multiples. There's one that's a public-facing yeah. interface and there's one that's private to a particular type of um secondary application and one to other internal applications, and that we actually have multiple layers then of um, services that we're exposing in sets, um, sets basically on um, degree of trust, authorization type things. Okay, number six, semantics and canonical messages. And this actually relates to some fabulous work I get to do sometimes. I have a um, an organization that I work with that's called Semantic Arts, and these people are leaders in the concept of semantics. And I got to, to work with uh, another organization called Contivo. And these people look at the messages that come out of services and what it actually means to the organization. So I can tell you that I said that, you know, for me, a fairly simple application consists of 200 tables in one or two databases. 
For these people, a relatively simple situation they'll get dropped into is 200 independent applications that are written in a variety of languages over the last 20 or 30 years. And semantics, I mean, loosely defined is you say tomato and I say tomato, right? I mean, well, that's... It's actually a little bit more than that. It's, it's a little bit more like, you know, if I said tomato and meant tomato paste and you said tomato and meant the can of tomato and yeah. uh, Richard said it and he meant the tomato sitting, it was the red and sitting on the vine. So it's, it's, a, it's different in that sense. It's what do we mean when we say a word? And right. so a great example comes out of justice. So in juvenile justice, different, um, different, um, different areas are going to call their juveniles something different. One might call them a juvenile. One might call them a client. One might call them a perpetrator. Perp. One might call them a criminal. <laughs> and those are actually very fundamental to how the organizations work. Yeah. And they can't really change those. It's very hard for you to use different semantics. So within a large organization, so for instance, a state agency or um, a company like Microsoft or a, uh, a large bank, they're going to have different departments that have that same kind of difference in perspective. And the language colors the, the, the opinions and the attitudes towards people. So. Well, even getting away from a hot button like juvenile, try customer. Yeah. Exactly. And customer yeah. is a fabulous example because we, we need, once we get to the message level, once we're throwing around SOA messages at a high level, and, and this is some work that Contiva is right in the heart of, once we start throwing this stuff around, then we're... Um, w- my message has to be understandable to you. And so yeah. we can create a, a, a hardware bus that allows us to throw messages back and forth without a lot of endpoint knowledge. We know how to do that today. But what we're, we're much weaker at is having both ends of that endpoint cope with the message. And we basically have to build a mechanism. This, again, this is what Semantic Arts is in the middle of. And actually, the, uh, my business card with them actually says .NET Goddess. Uh-huh. What my role there is, <laughs> is just to be the .NET expert. But I get to watch all these brilliant people, and I swear their intern is smarter than I am. You know, they get they are working at solving this problem for very large companies, and so it's totally awesome to get to work with them. And that, yeah, I was thinking about them when I made that bullet point, so we can get back to my list. But it's, it's, really, um, it's really exciting area to me to get to watch that. Well, we talked about number seven, workflow. Let's talk about number eight, rules engines. Right, and so what we're saying here is that actual code does not necessarily rely in the um, lie in the code itself. So we have decision points that are lying outside in XML. Isn't this a, about the general movement to push more of the decision-making about the behavior of applications to the user? Both workflow and rules engines are right in the heart of that, and it's it's not necessarily to the user. It's just out of code, and those yeah, are not out of the, synonymous. Off of the developer. That's a better way to describe well, it. And I don't it even is... think it has to be off of the developer, because developers are very good with rules engines, and in some organizations, they're still the ones that should be doing the workflows and the rules engines, but out of code. Out of code means it's out of technology. Right. Code is technology, and we will throw away every line of code we write within the next probably five years, certainly the next decade. Rules engines and workflows have the potential to last for decades. And so, so this is really about in... taking that information and pushing it into data rather than into code. Absolutely. That's what declarative means. Declarative means it's in code and not, it, sorry, it's in data and not in code. Yeah, it's easier easier to change data than to change code. Much I think it's also easier to back up that data and it's easier to persist it across multiple iterations of an application. Yeah, Absolutely. And it winds up, one section of that winds up being metadata for code generation too. So we can turn around and actually create code across multiple technologies. From the data. Once yeah. we start getting as much as we can out of the, the out of code itself. You said something that um, sparked a little tangent in my mind, which was 
what is it? The, every line of code we're going to write is going to be obsolete in five years or so. What did you say? It's going to be thrown I said, away? We're going to throw away every line of code we write within five years. Yeah. I mean, so is there I've, a line of code you wrote five years ago that you would not throw away if you were reworking that application today? Well, I really, I've thought about this for a long time, and I, I, I've always thought that people treat software as disposable. And it's not just um, the software that we write for businesses, but software that's on the shelf, software that's on our PCs, like, you know, games or, or encyclopedias. Encyclopedias have knowledge that is timeless, right? Right. So mm-hmm. why do you need to upgrade? It's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, well, because knowledge grows. No, 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 right. no, no. You know, maybe it's a bad example, but, but you, let's say you have, let's say you have a game and it's a perfectly good game. But you install that, and then two years later, you go, oh, that's an old game. Maybe it's not because you haven't played it a lot, but it's because it's old, right? I mean, people have this idea of software as sort of being disposable, I think. Well, I think there's some degree of that. I also have to say that I've got this very retro son, and he knows more about the 1980s um, computer games than I do. So, I mean, and more about their music than I do too. So, you know, I think sometimes that's true. And, you know, sometimes it's, sometimes there's, you know, we can go back and we can grab not every game from the 80s. um, Does he know anything about? He only knows the ones that had a certain timelessness. So I do think after some point that we can reach back and find that timelessness. And that's a great, another great example of that is the difference between Wikipedia and any encyclopedia, whether it's online or on a shelf. Right. Well, that's the thing. Like, you know, uh, a software, um, I've been having this discussion, too, with a friend of mine lately, which is about how one of the reasons why I think guys are really attracted to software, I've talked about it on the show before, which is that, you know, we can't create life. Women create life. (laughs) But so this is as close as we can get to building an intelligence without the help of anybody, right? Right, right. So I think that once you have this little intelligence, if you don't continuously feed and water and, you know, change, then it's sort of, you sort of get the idea that, oh, well, its smarts are limited to when it was created. You know what I mean? I think so. that that's that that's true in some cases, and I also see a lot of change um, that's forced that's forced on us from the outside. Uh, for example, I, I mentor a company that has um, uh, they work in the asset management for counties, so basically tax records. And so, in in that space, they wrote their application years ago in Access, moved it to Oracle, yeah. and and now its underpinnings need to be updated for a lot of very very good reasons. Yeah. And they're working through the process of having to go through an incredibly expensive upgrade that their users will not understand. I know the it, difference in what we're talking about. I'm talking about software that doesn't make money. Right. Okay. <laughs> software that doesn't make money. Yeah, that's a different deal. That's a different story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Flush it. All right. Well. Um. Where are we? Uh, nine, aspect-oriented programming. And you know what? I've almost got to skip that one because actually in my blog where I, I annotated each of these in my blog if people are interested in them. And when I got to that one, I said, I've got to come back to it. I don't know enough today. I know enough about aspect-oriented programming to know it belongs on the list. Not enough to explain very well how it's actually changing things. Well, and by the time this show is out, we'll have recently have just published a show uh, in fact, I think it's already uh, published right. about aspect-oriented programming at a set of libraries called PostSharp. Right, uh, exactly. org. And uh, it's a very interesting thought about abstracting this another layer of plumbing or another layer of infrastructure in your code away from your core code. That's basically the idea is to take out common code and just remove it from your editor window and replace it with attributes 
And uh, that way that, you know, it's plumbing, it's done, it's never going to change, it's out of there. Great. So that you don't have to, you don't get cluttered. Yeah. That's what that's yeah. all about. So 10, impact of libraries. So, uh, you know, we've always been doing libraries, and we did those in the 80s, but they sure have gotten bigger. We put them in separate um, separate DLL, separate assemblies now, because we have that capacity we didn't have back in the 80s. I think overall, um, the libraries that we're using from Microsoft have gotten huge. The amount of micro of code at a low, you know, little to solve little problems that we have to do right now is pretty small. We we are we are doing a lot of gluing together of of pieces. While we don't perceive it that way, we're working on top of absolutely gigantic libraries to help us out. And we're definitely standing on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. There's so much stuff that just works now that we keep forgetting. Right, and we just now we've got um, in the newest version of Visual Studio. It's getting almost no press, but we have a new um, set. It's called the Hash Set, and it's a, a high performance, fully functioning set. Um, collection, basically. It's another thing in that general uh, grouping, and uh, it's brand new. We have brand new stuff on app domains, and that's just what's happened on top of the whatever thousands of classes we already had. Yeah. All right. Guys, that was the first 10, and it's taken us about 20 minutes, <laughs> and you have 60. 60 of these? 60 right now. Yeah, we're going to have a little bit of a time problem here. <laughs> Plus, I'm not so, sure how I'm not sure it's interesting to go through every one at this level because you know for folks that want to sit back and contemplate that I'd really love them to uh, to to go to my blog, download the stuff, send me whatever you think I left out because there'll be plenty that I've left out, and then also put it together in a taxonomy. And all taxonomy means is a useful organization. So ask a question like I asked the question of why did we do this, and I wind up with all this stuff that I think is for managing complexity. But ask some sort of a question that you think is interesting on this set of items and, and organize it based on that and see if something interesting comes out. Yeah, well, hey, and right away, I think jump out at me of how many of these has Microsoft implemented? How many of these were actually an open source idea? How many mm. of these are language agnostic mm. right. or even platform agnostic? How many agnostic? came out of research? Yeah, there is, there's a lot of interesting angles you can go with this. What are development methodologies? Even though they may still also be reducing complexity, there's a lot of different approaches to how you might analyze all of this data. I got to keep going, Kathleen. I got to keep going. Okay. How about 11? Property dialogues. Property dialogues, you know, and th- that and IntelliSense are so much the same. I'm going to throw them in together. <laughs> okay. So we write our, uh, we write, we create some sort of a class. And if this is class happens to be something that will show up on a designer, so for instance, it's a uh, WinForms control, WPF control, whatever um, kind of control, in addition to designing the, the actual properties the way that we want to build them, we also need to design what it will look like in a property dialog, and so what categories it's going to be in, what, um, whether it's there at all, and we have to decide how we want it to appear in IntelliSense. So we have at least three levels at which we design a class just to start with. Well, and this is all about, again, taking code off of our plate. We're declaratively designing these objects, and the code still exists. You just don't see it. Exactly. So we don't write anything about a property dialogue except we just put in an attribute as to whether this particular property is going to show up in that property dialogue. Right. And if it is, which which category it's going to go under. 
Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik's Q2 2000 Tools update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET, WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The AJAX-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Form Suite. It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting, you can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. All right, designers, workflow and UI designers. Right. Number 12. Yes. Okay. Uh, mine just, uh, the list I happen to be looking at somehow wound up with a couple of different words in there, but it's still designers. Right. So we actually build the, um, and, and we didn't used to do this in the 80s, we build our user interface by dragging and dropping stuff around. So we position things. We use a lot of tools for organization there. And so we also have to prepare for that. And WPF is one of the places that we're really going to see that. A WPF attached property, which I think I have attached properties also as a separate item, but that's a good example of what I mean by we're working in a world where we both create classes with an idea of what the designer's going to do. It might be a type description or something like that. And we build another set of classes, which would be our forms, strictly through designers. Yeah, that's just more of this declarative development concept. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, all about getting rid of the code where we don't need the code. Okay, unit testing, number 14. No, okay. no, no, I skipped one. Number 13, how how uh, obvious is that? I skipped the unlucky number 13. There you go. <laughs> Design patterns. Okay, so what we're saying here is that not only do we sit down and code like internally, like we look inside our own problem and figure out how to code it, we look outside far more formally than we did, you know, 20 years ago. And I do sound old when I talk about that. So, uh, but, you know, it, but that is the perspective I came to this from. So we go out um, and we look at books. We look at, at previous art far more than we used to do. And right. the design patterns is the real classic example of that. Yeah. But the most, I think one of the more exciting things we're seeing now is more and more tools built around implementing those patterns. And, of course, the, the, the latest one, and arguably one of the most exciting, is this whole concept of an MVC library right. for ASP.NET. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then one of the things we get to watch in that, when it gets done from the outside, is we get to see um, the, the relative success of that from other people, basically. So I think MVC is going to be very useful for some people to do their ASP.NET applications. But we're also going to learn, like, like from the outside, where we don't have to invest a lot, 
we're going to learn some stuff about when that's not really the greatest approach. Right. I also yeah. think the uh, the um, you know the dynamic code generator to kind of things like refactor and code rush and resharper. Those are really built have built in smarts for implementing design patterns as well. That's right. Yeah, it's getting interesting. Well, right. and it's in, it's interesting to see where we've gotten to in these years, where we now have enough horsepower that we can afford to build in additional layers of abstraction right. and also that kind of intelligence. I'm, we're so close to this point where the paperclip's going to pop up and say, it looks like you're building a model view controller <laughs> design pattern. Would you like to do it right? Because you're screwing it up right now. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's what I want. Yes. <laughs> Clippy. Clippy with know, brains. I don't want a paperclip, but yeah. yeah. Clippy in studio. Clippy oh, is horrors. smarter than you are. Yes. You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> But this recognition that certain design patterns now are becoming so pervasive that once you can get to a point in understanding an application where you say this would best be represented by an MVC, and here is a set of tools specifically oriented on doing that. Right. uh, That's very compelling. It is very compelling. It always hits me at how many of those design patterns I just figured out, you know, without naming them, you know. that's absolutely true as well. But, you know, we definitely, and, and sometimes I think that's actually good. Sometimes I think it's kind of good to name it after the fact because you really are staying looking at your problem. And sometimes when you go out looking for the pattern to fit your problem, sometimes you wind up with an awkward fit. Yeah. And so I'm actually somebody who thinks that it's great that that book's out there. I mean, I love the fact that well, we have multiple books now. I love that, but I definitely stay kind of one step back from design patterns. Um, I kind yep. of know when I'm putting some of the big ones in, yeah. and then sometimes I just don't even remember which name goes with which one. Right. Um, but we still, by reading that, we still have that in our knowledge. Kind of like the structure books that we had back. Um, I actually am not trained as a computer scientist, but um, Algorithms and Structures has, is one of the longest-running courses in a computer science curriculum, and it's still the, one of the first courses you take. Yep. But, you know, it'll... This also, I think, fetches back to the whole semantics and, and Canon's thoughts. A lot of design pattern was really about allowing developers to speak in a common language when they were right. working on a problem. That's absolutely true. And in, in, in groups, I don't, you know, it turns out I don't work a lot in groups. Sometimes I do, um, but it's more common that I work on my own. So that's always been a secondary thing for me. But for large groups, it's really critical that people can quickly get on board with what, it, what the goals are and what we're trying to do with any piece of code. Right. Okay, let's jump to 14 unit testing. Right. So, so what I'm talking about here is, is, is on two levels. One of which, of course, unit testing should make our code better. Um, but I'm really talking about the fact that if we can write applications that are basically not testable from a unit testing point of view or are extremely difficult to test. So if we're actually writing with the idea of doing unit testing, we're going to write our application differently. Uh, we're going to look at it on a more, um, microcosmic, more discrete uh, basis than we will if we're just throwing code out. I think it's one of the most important things that uh, testing brings to the table is it makes us write our code better because yeah. if we just wrote it the garbage way we used to, I mean, I'm thinking right now back to even VB6 days when everything was just mishmashed together. One big you couldn't sub, test it. right? I'm sorry? Yes. One big sub. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, we get out the of The guy that. who wrote his whole app in form load. That's right. Right. We can't <laughs> do that. Right. It forces us to break it down in order to test it. And that is, we have to think about that to, in order to do unit testing well, we have to think about it up front. And it also gets into some of the side objects, 
um, such as mock. Um, and, yeah. and I actually don't do a lot of mocking. I'm, I'm working on a, a mentoring a project right now where I really wish we had. Uh, we didn't set it up at the beginning. It's going to be too expensive to back up. But we're kind of dying in our testing over database changes, mm. which we wouldn't have if we were able to, if we had that in mocked out um, instead of going straight to our database. Hmm. You know, I, I had a conversation with a metal worker, actually, a mill worker. Uh, and we were, and believe it or not, we tied this into unit testing because he was just describing the differences between cast metal items and forged metal items and saying the nice thing about ca- about forged metal items is they tend to be smaller and assembled so that they're discreetly testable and manufacturable. Uh, and I'm like, mm-hmm. holy cow, that's unit testing with steel. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it was all about... it. If you're going to cast, you tend to cast very large items, and the whole thing fails or the whole thing succeeds, mm. and it's very tough to evaluate where the flaws are. Right. So wow. it has to be low-tolerance stuff, where when it's high-tolerance stuff, they do a lot more forging work, machining work, and every piece is discreetly testable. Wow. Right. So that makes smart. Sense. All right. N- number 15, refactoring. Okay, so refactoring is a fascinating one on this list because what we're saying when I put the word refactoring on here is we used to kind of think when we wrote our code we were kind of done, and now unless we say we will not refactor, which I don't think anybody says today, we're saying when when we finish our code, we're not done. Isn't that a VB keyword, not refactorable? No. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be mean to VB. Um, No, No, I wasn't being mean to VB. I'm just saying it's funny. Yeah, it is funny. Um but if we're going to, um, assuming, that, I mean, everybody should be refactoring today in one way or another. So we're saying that fundamentals, like what our parameters are for a particular method call, that that is open to change. And so the, the basics of our code is, is we're expecting it to be in flux forever. And, and that's a, a far, we used to just do maintenance where we needed to. And there used to be a, you know, if it isn't broken, uh, you know, don't fix it yeah. kind of a mentality. And I think that's a very negative thing now in software. And we really like to write code with testability and refactorability such that we don't have to live with that kind of, you know, whatever ugliness is there, we're going to stick with because we're afraid we're going to break something. Well, isn't the basic definition of non-refactorable code legacy code? Mm. This is code. If you if it can't be refactored, it will eventually be abandoned. Oh, absolutely. And and I think that you know we we have this idea. And I said you know your code's going to get thrown away. I I think that has to change. By the way, I'm I that's what I fight against. I agree. Um, in a variety of different things that I do, one of which is the metadata push and getting things out of technology. But the other one is there is some code that will live longer than other, even though it's in C Sharp or VB. Even though it's in a technology, it will live longer because it's testable. It's refactorable. It's not so much steeped in this legacy stuff, and we're going to be able to change it. Okay. Do you, Kathleen, do you use any kind of refactoring tools? Um, you know, I actually, it's interesting, because I right now still run my life on a simple basis um, because I stand up in front of people. And so because I do so many talks, um, I do not use Refactor Pro because I want to look very normal. I don't want to yeah, be using anything that's going to distract. Right. And so I, um, the, I do use the primary refactoring tool, which is symbolic rename. Both VB and C Sharp have always had that. Mm-hmm. You don't need an add-on to, for VB to do symbolic rename. And I use that every day uh, okay. because I'm tweaking that. It's a little bit harder for me if I'm going to be changing. Uh, I'm working in Visual Basic. I work in both. But when I'm in Visual Basic, if I want to change parameters, for example, uh, that's a little bit harder for me to do because I don't have a tool to do it. Okay. 
But I'd probably just download Refactor if I actually ran into doing a lot of that because yeah. it's available for every VB programmer. Yep. Okay, let's uh, talk about interfaces, number 16. Right, so this is contracts. And so this is saying that in addition to all of our class-level stuff we're designing, we're also designing another layer of stuff. It goes back to the SOA idea, but it, this one's very formalized, that we actually create a series of interfaces that are contracts. And we're using them for a variety of different things. We're using them for local services within Workflow. We're using them in WCF. We're using them in um, other places in Workflow. And we use them often internally for the purpose of creating a, con- a contract, even when that's not what we're thinking. We wouldn't initially use that word, but it actually is what we're doing. And one example of that is when we have to put something into a common location so that we can do some uh, polymorphism or some replaceability between items that otherwise don't have a common base. And that is a contract still, even though we don't generally use the word. Right. And we've been, we've been, we've had contracts even before interfaces. Right. There's other ways to do it. Interfaces are an awfully sweet way to manage, uh, manage contracts, including some of the fact that it can be challenging to version them because we should see versioning our contracts as being a challenge to us and avoid it when we can. And they're useful in so many, so many situations. That's right. Yeah. Well, and I, and I wonder if this is more of a perception thing than it ever was actually a coding thing. We've always had some kind of interface. Just because we've gotten into the declarative concepts around it and the publication concepts around it doesn't mean it really changed the technology, just its utilization. I never really got it until .NET. And right. I and never really got interfaces until Right. Now. We had it back in uh, the VB3 days. I'm trying to kind of relate that much to the old uh, you know, C++ and C work that I did a really long time ago um, and you know, beyond that to Fortran. And so I don't know if always, but we certainly had it in the VB3 to VB6 days yep. and in a, a lot of what was done in C++. I don't think I used them very much back when I was writing C++ against Clipper. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. as soon as you get into Windows, you got into DLLs. And the moment you're dealing with DLLs, you've right. got an interface. You've got to. Yeah. That's right. You know, the contract is there. It, it, the the language wasn't statement. that way back then. <laughs> right. But it was there. But see, I go back before Windows and even before, you know, I, I go back a long way in this. I actually was at a, I got a quick aside here. I was actually in, this was up in Maryland. I was giving a talk and it came up that I have actually been programming since 1972. And somebody in the room said, uh, said, I wasn't even born in 1972. And somebody <laughs> else in the room said they had started programming in 1955, which means they started programming before I was born. Right. <laughs> well, and in 1955, you programmed by moving wires around. Uh, or switches, but it was yeah. effectively wires, yeah. In 55, um, I, around 55 is actually one of the most important things that we had is when we got addressable memory. There was a point that there was no such thing as a variable in any concept whatsoever, and you actually put down the physical position on whatever memory, which would have been a bunch of wire stuff, you actually put down the physical position of that. And if you can imagine what would happen when anything moved, it was a physical position, and that was a really important uh, change that we saw back in the mid-50s someplace. One of the more important things that's happened to get us where we are today. Yeah, that is still the time of core memory. Right. You know, before the integrated circuit, the integrated circuit is really a, a, a product of the 1960s. Right, exactly. So. so it's fascinating to talk to people from them. I am not so old that I remember the 1950s. No, well, I, I wasn't born then, but I, you know, ran in my youth, ran with these old school computer geeks, and we were keeping this crap alive. Right. I've heard some of your stories on that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I've actually held a K of memory in the form of core memory, and it's right. big. 
Right, right. Right. It's a, you know the size of a piece of foolscap paper. Right. Well, I actually pretty much missed uh, the whole switch kind of thing. I did have a computer. Almost my entire career has been with personal computers. So even in 72, I was using something that looked like a personal computer. It came out of NASA. It was a HP uh, machine. And then when I worked on PDP-11s, I was using them in a localized format in a, you know, in, for one particular task to run X-ray crystallography. So I only had one little time that I was working on many computers. And at that point, we had a mini computer that we had to boot with dip switches. So I have used dip switches because they actually had to be used, but not to program, only to set up um, the condition for a boot. Uh, and on and a, PDP-11 was the first computer that really felt like a microcomputer, except that it weighed several thousand pounds. Well, I actually used one before that. It was actually about as powerful as a um, um, as an H as one of the HP calculators from the uh, late 1980s. But it actually was a full size machine. It had more memory and. Uh, did some things like that. Actually, it was, it was welded together, but it was actually a CRT attached to a CPU, attached to a keyboard with a floppy drive. And that was available. It was actually had been given away by NASA, from NASA, by 1972, because it was in, I was in junior high in 1972, and it was in our junior high, and we used it. The number of times I acquired computer equipment because I was willing to carry it out. <laughs> If you, that was the common line was, if you can get it out of here, you can have it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I have managed to avoid keeping any of those. I still have in the basement and I'm going to have to get rid of it soon because my, I'm going to downsize my life. But, um, I have every, uh, CPU out as part of the DOS series. So I have, I have a machine with each of the CPUs starting with the 8086. So. Uh, yeah, I've back. had to dispose of old computer equipment. It just well, especially when you get back to that vintage. Right. You know, we actually acquired a whole HP 2000 at one point, which filled a garage. Oh my gosh, that's too big. <laughs> but it was literally hundreds of dollars a month in electricity. Right. Yeah. Right. And it took three people to turn it on. Right. <laughs> but it, it just wasn't. You know, it, it got silly after a while. And uh, I mean, some of the gear we kept alive for a very long time was disintegrating. Like traces were falling off the the boards. Right. They were they were so old. Right. Well, I haven't fired up my eighty eighty six for about five years, so I don't know if it still is even going to fire. So uh, we'll see. I think it's probably going to have to go to the dump. Sad as that is, and as much <laughs> as it's going to cost me in in dump fees. But. Oh, that's too bad. Do well, a little recycling wants, there. Somebody Let somebody wants else to museum. take it. They can give me a call and figure out how to ship it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're up to uh, seventeen multiple assemblies. Well, so back in the you know back when life was simpler, we only had one assembly. Actually, we didn't even use that many different assemblies in VB three to VB six days. Um, and now, like my current project has seventeen assemblies. My uh, the client project I just mentioned that I mentor one of the people that I mentor. I was there yesterday and they have twenty four. So it's pretty common that we're going to have more than five projects now in a single solution to solve a single set of problems. So that's really quite different because the interactions between those become, you know, really important. And the next item I'll skip to it, which is internals visible to, is that we actually have an attribute that completely breaks scope between them. So intentionally. You know, intentionally, right. Intentionally. But we, we don't have to we we don't have to follow scoping rules between those multiple assemblies anymore. Although it's it's pretty bad practice to count on that for coding techniques, this is really about encapsulating libraries and or assemblies and and abstracting from them. And, and I kind of struggle with that actually, Richard, because I do agree with you up to a point. And, and obviously, internals visible to major purpose in life is to manage testing, and so that's right. that's the reason it's there. I would but also say debugging as well. Right, but at the same time. 
um, I look at a particular set of, we talked about, you know, some of this uh, end-tier stuff, and I would really like a different kinds of, kind of relationship between my data access layer and my business object than I have between my user interface and the world. So if I have to make things public in my data access layer in order to show them to my business object and there's a potential that my user interface can get a hold of that, then I find that far more negative than actually setting up additional dependencies by having internals visible to you to help uh, moderate that relationship between the data access layer and the business object. But isn't this more of a simple code access security problem then? I just think it's it doesn't make sense to build a totally different technology to do that when I really ought to be able to secure it. I, I should use a common method for making things visible, but be able to control who has visibility to it. Right. And that's that's probably that's probably a good approach. I, I actually that's whole that whole area is one that I've uh, pretty much done with some uh contracts, you know, and a lot of just don't do it. Like, you know, things like contracts that said, you know, interfaces that said I you know, do not use, and then the name of the real interface. And, you know, so I've done some of that kind of stuff to solve that problem. <laughs> I haven't actually I haven't actually addressed that problem for a couple of years, and so I haven't gone back in with our modern tools to look at it. All right, 19, overloads. Right, so a single method can do a variety of different things. It's, a single method is not, a single method name is not a single method. Um, it can do however much you want to pass it different parameters, and those are completely independent. And so our naming gets to be something we have to pay attention to at that point. Well, and it it really gets into this idea that uh, a single method should do one thing. The parameter changes are really about two different things. So it should, and that gives us another level of when we're designing and we're thinking about our applications, it gives us another level we have to pay attention to because we have to decide what is the core for that name? What is it actually doing? And I agree with you that it should just do one thing, but what is that one thing? And then what are we pasting on as additional parameters and you know defaults and that kind of stuff? So sometimes that's pretty you know, straightforward to do, but I could give you an example of a place where without overloads, we're screwing it up on a regular basis, and that's the toString method. The toString method gets used for many different purposes today in different applications. It doesn't always just give you the class name, but sometimes it does, but sometimes it gives you an ID, or sometimes it gives you the most common um, uh, I, um, identifier, so like a, a last name for a customer object. So it gets used for a ton of different things. I also look at overloads as an uh, um, aspect of maintainability of an application, that I can maintain backward compatibility with an older version using an overload and build something new without having to redo my naming schemes and so forth. And you know what you just did? And, and this is really cool, okay? You just added one to the list. And no. it's not what you said, but it was something that you didn't say, which is when you do that, you should use the obsolete attribute. And the obsolete attribute is not currently on the list, and it should be on the list. Really? Okay. Which also brings up something else I want to say about this list, because, I mean, we can decide how much time we want to go through, because it kind of gets a little bit grinding to go through so many of these. But um, it's a fractal problem. And the fra- by a fractal problem, I mean that if uh, you cannot answer the question, what is the, the coastline of a lake or an island? And the reason is that it depends on how big your measuring stick is. So you could measure the coastline of an island by um, how many miles a 30-foot ship uh, would, would traverse to go around the island. You could also do it on a molecular level of how long is that shoreline as you go in and out of every molecule, and then you can also do it based on the, the height of the lake. So there's a lot of different variables in doing this list. So I actually have come to think that eventually, at some level, this list is infinite. At some level, it's like we can't ever fully define the problem because we keep, we're going to keep coming up with, oh, 
There's this obsolete attribute. And what that means is that I don't only have to worry about my class today, but I have to worry about what it looked like kind of in an interim yesterday that I'm still supporting but I'm going to get rid of. And so it puts this time factor in to the existence of our classes. That's a pretty fundamental change. It is, and and it is a big deal as to how we do that. It's an interesting theory, too. Only you would... Com, you know, compare fractals to this problem, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I love fractals, by the way. Yeah, and, you know, it, does it necessarily apply to programming? Sooner or later, you drill down to the bit. Right. And you right. really want to get sticky, the bit in the register. And so infinite's probably the, the, wrong, the wrong phrase. Uh, it very, very, too, so big, it, it might as well be infinite. Okay, number 20, perf and virtual table issues. Okay, so we run into this. right? Exactly. And one of the places we run into this is around the um, system.collection.list that Microsoft um, has uh, given to us. And when they built system.collection.list, they actually chopped everything out of the virtual table to improve performance. And so that means that if we use that particular class, we can't inherit from it. I think it's very rare that we would do that wisely. Um, because I think it just stinks that we can't add, we can't hand, handle any events, for example. Um, if we want to do something as simple as to raise an event when something gets inserted into our list, we cannot do it with that class. We have to use the separate class, which is in system.collections.objectmodel, and that is the collection class there, which is distinct from the Visual Basic collection, which never should be used and should have been put in the legacy uh, library. They screwed that up. But system. Set that obsolete flag. Yeah. yeah, well, they haven't done it yet, though. System.collections.objectmodel.collection. Uh, and wasn't that, that particular class. Yeah, wasn't the VB one one-based instead of zero-based? It had some other really weird things. It well, was trying actually, to be VB-ish. Yeah. Actually, no, the, the problem when it went to .NET, so the .NET version of it, yeah. the problem is is that you can you, you access items either by position or by key. Right. And to, in order to do that, they did some really ugly stuff. And at one point, and I got in a huge argument with somebody um, out of Australia, I can't even remember who it was, but they, uh, they actually went on a webcast and said that VB was up to 100 times slower. And I said, you are so full of it. And we got into this argument about it, and it came down to that exact piece. He had some, and I'm not sure whether his benchmarks are correct, but he had on that particular class, he had benchmarks that was 100 times slower. Oh, my God. So it's really, it's one to avoid. So the visual basic collection, um, and there's also one, I think it's the sort, there's two that are sorted. I think it's the sorted list. Sorted list, system text. Right, and it's accessible by key or index, but I do not believe the visual basic has, collection has been switched to it. I think it is still on its kind of hacked together internal. Simple collections, I think. System.collection, that's simple collection sorted list. Yeah. Okay, yeah. We're just about out of time. His, and we got through 20. We got through 20. I'm, I'm proud of us. Yeah, but uh, do we have time to talk about a couple other things? Sure. Sure. Go for it. Can I, I want to talk about my column for just a second because I'm really excited Please. about my column. Please. So I've got a column called Ask Kathleen in uh, Visual Studio Magazine, which you can get to at visualstudiomagazine.com. We've uh, finally uh, got it pretty much moved off of ftponline.com, which was its old location. And I've actually been writing this column since March, but it's only been branded uh, since October with my name on it. And I do little questions and answers. Now, I'll be straight up and honest that I actually make up most of the questions and answers. Dude, um, so did I. What? I wrote I wrote the Q and A column for that magazine. Yeah, once. so I make I make it up, but it's it's so that you can read it and kind of um, we can get a lot of little issues in there. 
Right. And so it's, it's been a whole lot of fun to write. I actually do um, entertain questions, and I do include them sometimes. And so, you know, I don't mind if people have a question if they want to ask me. And if I can answer it, I'll get it to them before the magazine actually comes out. I actually found that there was a lot of questions. Those, when I wrote it, people actually used the mail to uh-huh. send letters. Paper? Right. On paper that was Envelopes? done with typewriters. Word Stamps? processors? No. But I would find a lot of questions just were not. Um, they were so so narrow that uh, there wouldn't be a lot of I- interested readers, or so vague. Yeah, some of them were vague, but but a lot of them were just narrow in scope, so they they wouldn't really unless they were really interesting, you know. But but I ref- but then I ref- if I get one like that and it actually has some core that's that's nice, right. then I will will build something around it. So I've got some interesting stuff back from about June on enums. Okay. And an actually enum wrapper class that does lets you do a lot of, of pretty nice things, particularly with WPF. And that came out of an extremely narrow question that, that somebody sent me um, that I was then able to spin off into something that I think is pretty interesting work. Hmm. So you, that that happens sometimes. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, that sounds great. So that that's been, that's fun. And um, do we have time to talk about the evil VB compiler bug? Of course. Okay. So and then you guys can can come back and edit out to make this like not <laughs> two hours long. <laughs> That'd be fun. Okay. So anyway, um, there, there's a VB compiler bug. No. Yes, there is. <laughs> it is an actual bug in the compiler. Okay. So, so just throw out a couple of ideas of what you think would make the worst possible bug, particularly in a compiler. Uh, something that doesn't happen regularly. Something happens that you, like intermittently. Intermittent. Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. How about it also I goes away that. and comes back? Oh, even worse. Transients. Transient, right. Very transient. Mm-hmm. Even worse. Okay, yeah. Um, and, and, and how about the fact that it doesn't give you any indication that it has happened whatsoever? Oh, even better. Yeah. So okay. you don't know if it's happening. You don't know if it's happening. So nice. now, let's, let's add the one thing. What's the worst thing a compiler could do? Not report an error. Okay, so, but, but what might it do that it should report an error about. How about the IL that's produced doesn't match your source code? Yeah, wow. well, that would be pretty bad. Break your functionality. <laughs> okay, so, so this is actually a pretty narrow bug. It's not going to happen to everybody. It's, it's going to be relatively narrow, and there's stuff on my blog um, about how you can, and on my website as well, is, is to how you can, you can find this. And my blog references the, the stuff on my website. And it's now in a KB article as well, but I'm afraid I don't have the number off the top of my head. It, it is again in, in my blog. But, um, if, if, it, if it's only in the VB compiler, and if you have less than five projects, it cannot happen. So that immediately says, you know, a lot of people are not going to run into it. And then, um, of the, the ones that are left, you have to use a constrained generic. So those two things have to happen. And that cuts out a lot of people. Um, if it doesn't cut you out at that point, personally, I think it's worth understanding at least enough about a bug that you can see whether it might apply to you. There's going to be a tool coming out from the team just in the next few weeks. Um, it's just Christmas is why it's not already out. Uh, that's actually going to be able to run across your project and guarantee that you don't have this um, this particular situation happening. Wow. Um, but one of the things I want to say about this is the team, it was interesting because here I get this bug and it falls in my lap and I'm, it happened to my, my application. I had a combo box that didn't fill. So I went through and I set a breakpoint on the line that should have filled the combo box. That's what we'd all do, right? So what happened next, I really want people to realize if this ever happens to you, Take a deep breath and figure out what the heck is going on because the breakpoint moved. 
the breakpoint should not move unless that line of code doesn't exist. So, for instance, if you're using C++ and you've got optimization going on, the breakpoint might move because that line of code might be gone. But for us in .NET and managed code, it should never happen. If it does, I would suggest the next thing you do is open up Reflector, look at your code, and I did that, and the line was not there. And that was like, so, if that ever happens to you, the next thing you should do is zip it. Zip everything you can in that condition because something is so bad wrong that we really need to get it to the attention of the right people. So that happened, and I actually then found a way to fix it, which was to clean my solution. And it went away. And so I said, great. Now, I reported this bug as a conversion bug from 2005. Okay, I said, when you convert from 2005, something goes wrong. It screws up the I.O. You have to clean your solution. I went on. I thought, so what? You know, this is a kind of like, what's the big deal kind of a bug? And I started telling people, be sure to clean your solution. So then the team comes back to me, and they said, you need to try this. And I said, that's dumb. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It has nothing to do with what I was seeing. Just, and I didn't even get to it for two weeks. And they caught me at Dev Connections. And somebody, it was Jason Melzer, catches me, sits me down. He says, we need to know this. And I said, okay. Cool. And he shows me what's actually wrong. And I'm going, holy crap. And so that's why, you know, it's been interesting working with the team. And, and I have to say, they've not been trying to hide this at all. Uh, they have a different great. perspective than I do as to how often this is going to happen. The client I was at yesterday, I'm looking at his code and I'm going, you're definitely a candidate. You know, and there's, it's going to be the higher-end solutions. People that are doing more complex things are the ones that are going to potentially run into problems. It's still going to be small, hmm. but this bug is so bad, you, you don't want to wait till you get it. You want to guarantee your code can't be affected by it. Are we sure it's specific to VB? Yes, we actually understand it. The team understands it very specifically. It makes a mistake. Um, what happens is at the core, and I mean, I can explain it to you, but it's kind of hard without circles and drawings and pictures, but what happens is there's a combination of file and project references, and because the file reference, <clears throat> um, excuse me, a DLL gets loaded early, and there's two DLLs that are out of sync, and that's why cleaning the solution solves the problem. But you have an old DLL and the new DLL that are out of sync, and instead of, of raising an error and saying, you know, I shouldn't be, you know, just dying, which is what the compiler should have done, it actually says, oop, I don't know what to do, I'm skipping it. And, and that's really the, the really, oh, my God, this is just a horrible screw-up that that ever could have happened. And the team sees it that way. I mean, I do want to say that they absolutely have been awesome in terms of, um, of, of getting the word out on it and, you know, helping me to understand it because I think I'm the only person outside Microsoft that understands this bug. Hmm. And trying to, they, their explanation to me is like Greek. And they've gone through and said, okay, so yours is project, this is project A and this is project B and this is project C in your code. And then I could turn it into, you know, this is where your WinForms application is and this is where your utility library is. And I can explain it the way I think it's going to occur almost all the time. So yeah, that one's, that's been fun. Kathleen, this has been an enlightening show for, for all of us. I'm sure, I'm uh, absolutely sure of that. Um, what great information. You're just a, a font of wisdom. <laughs> it's really true. And uh, thank you. Well, it's been fun. All right. And uh, thanks for, again for coming on the show. And we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band